Hi, this is Alex Howards, and today we'll be mapping the sympathetic nervous system on the 15-minute matrix. Welcome to the 15-Minute Matrix. I'm Andrea Nakayama, functional medicine nutritionist and your host. This is the podcast that brings you bite-sized insights and lessons on how to use the most important tool in functional medicine and functional nutrition. Today on the 15-Minute Matrix, I'll be speaking with Alex Howard. Alex Howard is founder and CEO of the Optimum Health Clinic, one of the world's leading clinics specializing in fatigue-related conditions. Now a major UK charity, the Optimum Health Clinic has a team of 20 full-time practitioners supporting patients in over 40 countries. Alex is also an immensely experienced practitioner himself, having delivered over 10,000 consultations working on the psychology side of this group of illnesses. He has led the Therapeutic Coaching Practitioner Program since 2005, training the next generation of psychology practitioners. Alex and the research team at the Optimum Health Clinic have published research in a number of leading journals, including British Medical Journal Open, Medical Hypotheses, and Psychology and Health. A randomized control on the Optimum Health Clinic approach is currently underway in the UK. Alex, welcome to the 15-Minute Matrix. Thank you for having me, Andrea. I am always thrilled to talk to you. Our conversations are so rich, and I'm excited to present more about the sympathetic nervous system and where it gets in the way of healing. So just to ground us, Alex, the sympathetic nervous system is, of course, part of the autonomic nervous system and the central nervous system. And we typically think of the sympathetic nervous system as our fight or flight response. Is that correct? That's exactly right. And also, just to to jump in on something, people talk a lot about the fight or flight response they often forget the freeze response Mm, so that's a parasympathetic response and one of the things we see for example a lot in trauma and sometimes also in severe chronic illness is that there is a parasympathetic response which is a freeze response but it's actually still a nervous system activation which can have an impact on healing. Interesting. One thing I've heard you say before, Alex, is in relation to the body's ability to heal. Can you make some connections between the sympathetic response and that potential that we have? I think there are people in our patient community that are fed up of me saying this, and I'm going to say it until the day I retire, which is that for the body to heal it has to be in a healing state. Mm. And there's obviously many, many nuances and details to the physical process of healing. And they are often complex. They're obviously crucially important. But one of the things that we've noticed working with a very large number of people with chronic fatigue, ME, fibromyalgia, with a combination of functional medicine-informed nutrition team and a team of psychology practitioners, is that if the body is not in a calm healing state you can take all the right supplements you can do all the right things in terms of diet and food but if the body's not in a healing state it doesn't make use of that and just kind of one example of that being when the system is hypersensitive so the system's really ramped up and 
kind of an analogy that I sometimes use is if you think about post the London bombings back in 2005, I think it was. Prior to that, people would leave their kind of gym clothes on the London Underground subway and no one would really think about it. And then after the bombings, there was such a high state of alert in London that someone would leave their tennis shoes on the underground and the whole system was shut down and everyone was panicked. And understandably, everyone was freaked out that something terrible was going to happen. I kind of map this over to often what's happening in the body when the nervous system is in what we call a maladaptive stress response. It's in an overactivated state that people take supplements and they react to them. Yes. They take foods and they either don't absorb them or again, they react to them. What we notice is when we start to calm the system and people come more into their body and they can often feel the difference in the system calming, everything else seems to work better. Sometimes that calming the system alone is enough for the body's own innate ability to heal to start to kick in and just things start working better. But also in terms of sequencing treatment, what you can find is things that haven't been working start working when we start on the nervous system. Yeah, this is kind of what I call tier one and tier two work. We have to create that cradle, make sure that the person comes into their ability to heal before we start loading them with the tier three interventions, which are just targeting the problem. You also talked about some of the triggers there. Triggers could be things that are happening externally that put us on high alert, but some of the triggers for staying in a kind of a stuck sympathetic nervous system place could be habitual, even constitutional. I know you refer to these as certain patterns that I can identify in yeah. myself, the achiever pattern, the helper pattern. <laughs> what what pattern? No, no, one, no one in our community has any of these patterns. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> so if we turn our healing potential to ourselves as clinicians, where do we get stuck? One of the things that we've kind of been doing over the years is trying to understand what are the ways that people approach themselves and approach their lives that have either a direct impact on healing or they're just depleting and draining for the body. And so there's many of these patterns, but there's kind of five simple patterns that are easy for people to get their heads around that I think are are worth mentioning. So the first is the achiever pattern. And this is where we sort of define our self-worth by what we do and what we achieve in the world. So there's a constant sense of challenging ourselves and pushing ourselves. This could be in a kind of stereotypical big career, big house, big car, wanting to kind of have all of that stuff. But it can also be an atypical achiever. It can be someone that is really driven to make the world a better place Mm -hmm. or really driven to take on issues like climate change. And they're actually completely anti all of that external stuff. But the way they relate to themselves and their body is they're always pushing, they're always demanding more. So that's the achiever. Second is the helper. This is where we define ourselves by what we do for other people. So we get very good at being attuned to, being sensitized to other people's needs, and we somewhat define ourselves by what we do for others. And again, you can kind of see how over time this becomes very draining, you know, and there's many practitioners that they get to the point where their own body is screaming to be listened to and screaming for attention, but they're too busy taking care of others and trying to be there for them and support them. The third is the anxiety subtype. Mm. And 
this is really where we're trying to think our way to a feeling of safety. So there's a kind of sense that the world is not a safe place. And we feel this kind of sense of often being on edge. The coping strategy that we use for that is we try and predict all the things that might happen. If this goes wrong, I'll do that. So we're constantly thinking in the mind as a way of trying to get to a feeling of safety. The problem is you can't think your way to a feeling. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so it, 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 just, it just becomes a sort of an ever-ending loop that, that people kind of get stuck in. The fourth is the controller. And this is where for us to feel safe in the world, we have to control, it may be ourselves so our behavior, so we always have to come across the right way. Or it may be we have to control the environment. So we have to know that we're going to get the right food. We know that we're going to have enough quiet to be able to sleep, mm -hmm. that people are going to understand our needs. But there's a sense of if I don't control the world around me, then I'm not going to be, be safe. And the fifth one is the perfectionist. Again, we're not safe in the world if we don't get things right. And, you know, an example of this might be somebody that as a child lived perhaps in a slightly unpredictable or emotionally or perhaps even physically unsafe environment. And what they learned was if they got their behavior just right and they were attuned to others, they behaved perfectly, then they were safe. Mm. So it's not just a kind of, oh, I really care about detail. It's a sense that my nervous system doesn't relax unless I do things perfectly. Wow. You yeah. can kind of see with these strategies that if we approach ourselves and we approach the world around us, and some people may, may be thinking, but Alex, I have all of these. But if we approach with some of these or all of these strategies, it becomes very draining on the body and the nervous system is constantly being provoked and irritated by our trying to sustain these patterns. So I'm thinking of this kind of feedback loop, right? We have the sympathetic and the parasympathetic nervous system. And if we're constantly in that jacked up sympathetic state, we don't go into that rest and digest. We do then start to see symptoms throughout the full body systems. We see GI symptoms. We see reproductive symptoms. Symptoms. Are there other major symptoms that you're seeing as common amongst those who are in this kind of jacked up sympathetic state, not coming back into that place of balance? Yeah. So there's some really interesting research that's been kind of evolving over recent years by a researcher called Dr. Robert Navio, work on cell danger response. And this is a quite big body of research, but I think the few principles that I would make from it is that when the body is in a state of stress, when it's jacked up in the way that we're talking about, it prioritizes survival over day-to-day -day functioning. And of course, people will be familiar of research around students around exam time and effect on natural killer cells when, the nerve, when people are stressed. Right. There's lots of that kind of research of psychoneuroimmunology. But what's really fascinating about cell danger response is that one of the areas that Dr. Navio looks at this is looking at mitochondrial function. Mm. And people will be familiar with the mitochondria from the point of view of being our kind of cellular powerhouse and right. our kind of cellular energy production. But people often don't realize that the mitochondria have a, a second function, which is as a signaling molecule. And when we're under threat, the mitochondria's job, they're a little bit like the canaries in the coal mine. My grandfather actually was a coal miner. We go down in, into the coal mines and the canary would be highly sensitive to any gas that would be down there. So if there was gas, the canary would pass out or it would die and that would be a warning sign to get out. The mitochondria 
as well as being our energy production, they also perform this function of signaling to other cells there is danger, which is this mechanism of cell danger response. The really interesting thing is, though, when we're under danger, they deprioritize cellular energy production so they can prioritize this danger signaling. And so there's now a growing body of evidence which is beginning to show that the impact, for example, on energy of stress is not just that when we're under stress, digestion doesn't work as well, therefore we don't break down food as well. You know, it's not just that we under stress, we start pumping all of our blood to our heart and to our limbs so we can escape. There is a very direct relationship between our cellular function and being in a stress state and deprioritizing energy and prioritizing signaling within the system we're under danger. And this makes a lot of sense if you look, for example, at fatigue populations. We've known for many years that if we calm the nervous system over time, people's energy starts to increase. And this is really one of the ways of explaining this is very elegant and actually truly fascinating. And it really does map the clinical experience that we have. You calm the system, people start to get more energy. Really amazingly said and does bring us back to the biochemistry of the situation so that we could start to think about how we reset the system. So let's go into the reset a bit. You call it a reset, and it really is bringing us into the mediators for this jacked up response. Can you walk us through that? Yeah. So reset is an acronym really for five different stages in the process of resetting the nervous system. And the first one is we need to recognize what's happening. An experiment that I'm not recommending, (laughs) an experiment that's not one that I've done. So I'm told if you take a frog and you drop a frog in a bowl of boiling water, it will jump straight out. You take a frog and you put it in a bowl of cold water and you gradually heat the water, it will stay in there and get fried. It doesn't notice the gradual shift in temperature. We are the same. We get normalized to the homeostatic balance of what's happening in our system. So over time, if we start to get more and more wired in our system, we often don't even recognize that's what's happening. So one of the first things that I do when I work with people is to help them become aware of what's happening in their body, where their nervous system is and start to track that at different points in the day and have a kind of self-reporting mechanism to understand what's actually going on. So the first step is to recognize. The second step is we need to examine the patterns of thinking and behavior which are driving the nervous system up in the first place. And we we touched on some of this with these five energy depleting psychologies. One of the ways I talk about it is if we can see it, you don't have to be it. Mm -hmm. The more awareness we have of what's going on, sometimes the awareness alone is enough to shift it. You know, if someone's listening to this and they're suddenly going, oh my goodness, Andre and Alex are talking about this idea of being a helper. Oh my God, I can completely see my entire life. I've been putting everyone else's needs before my own. Sometimes that insight alone is enough to start to create some change in behavior. Very empowering. That examination is incredibly empowering. I find that's where I say tracking is key. When we can step back and watch, we're not in it, we're seeing it. Yeah, and sometimes it takes quite a lot of courage to see these things and there can be shame and Mm -hmm. there can be a sense of, well, I've done this all my life. I don't know who I would be if Mm. I wasn't meeting the world in this way. So we then come to the S of reset, which is to stop. We need to learn tools and techniques to stop these patterns of behavior. 
We think about it from a point of view of neuroplasticity, that the brain is wired to have certain thought processes. This is why if we condition a pattern of thinking or a pattern of behavior after a while, we go from doing something consciously to it becomes an unconscious competence. We've trained our system. And so we look at various tools and techniques to, to catch certain patterns of behavior, to literally stop those patterns, and to work on shifting, calming the nervous system. And there are techniques from neuro-linguistic programming, NLP, from mindfulness, meditation, that can help us start to change some of that wiring. We then come into the, the second E of reset, which is emotions. And I think this is often a, a misunderstood and often something that people are somewhat reluctant to deal with. People are often keener to look at things like meditation mindfulness kind of tools and techniques but the way that i see it is often when we're in a state of heightened sympathetic arousal we're very much in our mind so our energy has kind of moved from being in our belly and our digestion in our body that we get that sense of the kind of tired but wired like the racing mind that a lot of our energy is there and that's often because we've gone to our mind to escape our emotions because our emotions are happening in our body. It may be many years ago in childhood, it may be more recently in adulthood, but if we've been feeling feelings that we didn't know how to deal with, be that anger, be that sadness, be that traumas that have happened, I think the kind of more recent conversations around adverse childhood experiences, yes. I think has been helpful of putting more, more attention on this, but we have a lot of this emotional material that's happening we're escaping it to go into our mind to be able to fully come into the body. And I very much believe that, you know, I said at the start, for the body to heal, we have to be in a healing state. Well, the second part of that is to be in a healing state. We have to calm our mind mm. and come into our body. To be able to come into our body, we have to be able to feel the emotions. Sometimes that means digesting emotions from the past that haven't been processed. We have to work through traumas that are being held in the body. And then the final part of the reset model is T for transform. We have to transform the underlying issues, which often are the cause of a lot of this. Like, why did we go into our mind to escape our emotions? Why are we not dealing with our feelings and emotions? And this really comes down to two kind of fundamental issues that many of us are dealing with that at our core we don't feel safe like the world doesn't feel like a safe place we go into our mind to try and think our way to safety we speed up we try and achieve we try and control the environment so we don't feel safe and the second is that at our core often we don't feel loved and so we deal with that not feeling loved by if i can just achieve enough or help enough or if I can just get things right. So as we start to then work on some of these deeper underlying issues on finding a, a kind of place inside of ourselves where the world really does feel safe, where we can really come home to ourselves and come home to our body, where we can really cultivate a sense of self-love, not in a kind of narcissistic, oh my God, I'm great, I'm amazing, a kind of you know, 1980s kind of affirmations on steroids in a way which is a kind of deep sense of self-respect and self-love and self-care. That is really what allows us to not just come into our body, but find a new home and a new place from which we meet the world. Mm, so beautifully said, Alex. You have a way with words around this very complicated topic. Thank you so much for sharing your wisdom with us today.
It's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. There's so much we can say, but hopefully that's given people some helpful kind of sound bites to start to get some more sense of this. Absolutely. The 15-Minute Matrix is brought to you by me, Andrea Nakayama, and the Functional Nutrition Alliance. The 15-Minute Matrix team includes music by my son, Gilbert Nakayama, along with production support by Renee Hunt, Natalie Merrill, and Christine Shook. You can visit us and hear more episodes at 15minutematrix.com. And if you'd like to be notified each time there's a new podcast episode ready and waiting for you, head over to 15minutematrix.com forward slash notify. We'll drop into your inbox with a short reminder that a new episode is ready for you. You also have an open invitation to email us. We'd love to know who you'd like to hear on the podcast and what topics you'd like to see mapped on the 15-Minute Matrix. You can email us at ask at 15minutematrix.com. Before you go, I wanted to mention a free resource bundle I have for you. It's my new ebook, The Roadmap to Resolution, your blueprint for thriving in practice by addressing the root causes of chronic health challenges, even those that have not responded to the tried and true protocols you've been taught before. I wrote the ebook for coaches and clinicians like you who want to help those who are sick or in pain and just not getting better. There are ways that you can always make a difference, and I promise to show you how in the new ebook and the corresponding video series. It's all free, and you can get your hands on it by heading over to the podcast page at 15minutematrix.com or going to fxnutrition.com forward slash roadmap. That's fxnutrition.com forward slash roadmap. So go do it, get your copy now, and let's stay in conversation about how together we can make a change in healthcare.